I'm going to read from several verses uh, throughout Proverbs on the topic of anger. Then we'll consider them. Proverbs 14.29, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. 15.18, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. 16.32, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Good sense makes one slow to anger. It is his glory to overlook an offense. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor goeth a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. A fool gives vent to his spirit, but his wise man quietly holds it back. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. For pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. So let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the things you have to say about this specific topic of anger. And it's so hard to admit that it's in our hearts, dear Lord. Um, And yet it's in and around us all the time. And uh, we pray that you would attend to your words as you faithfully promised to do. Uh, that you would weed out anger in our hearts, you would bring it into our mind's eye, we would see it, we'd grieve over it, dear Lord. And um, all the self-righteousness and the righteous indignation we have, we pray that it would melt away before your gospel. Be with us, dear Jesus, and teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, This afternoon, as I was getting ready, going over my notes about 5 o'clock, I don't know if y'all felt it on campus, but our house started to rattle over in Forest Acres. Uh, we actually lived in Knoxville and at one point in time experienced like a three-point-something earthquake in Knoxville. But I don't know if anybody felt it this afternoon. Did you all feel that about 5 o'clock? Well, the house was rattling and I didn't know what was going on. And then we kind of began to locate the source of the whole rattling and you'd be shocked by how much a four-year-old girl can do in a house. And Britain was stomping, you remember this, I don't think probably all of us have grown out of stomping, but Britain was, little Britain, was stomping across upstairs, furious, because she had to put on her nightgown, and she couldn't draw right now while she was putting on her nightgown. And it was kind of beautiful that, like, I was going over my anger sermon, and, like, there was Britain, my perfect illustration. Kids are terrible at having uh, their anger. And um, kind of what I wanted to do tonight is look at that issue And the first thing, really jumping right in, is kind of address why we've got to talk about it, address the presence of anger. Um, Anger is a huge problem. And the first reason that it's actually a huge problem is because it's what Jerry Bridges calls a respectable sin. Or another way of saying it is it's a problem that we actually don't think is a problem, and that actually makes it much more dangerous. Bridges calls it it's a respectable sin. It's not like all the bad ones, right? you cheat on your husband or your wife, that's a big bad one, right? Stealing, lying. We got all the bad ones, but anger, you know? It it doesn't feel like a big deal. In certain contexts, it's even kind of celebrated and lauded. I'm kind of reminded this last week. I watched all the bully videos. You know know the kid Casey that beat up? The the kid who reacted to the bully and just wailed on him. Have you all seen this? I got on like a whole YouTube kick. And if you you seek like bully... um, like street payback or something or street justice, you get all these videos, which are kind of amazing, 
of people wailing on the bully. And it was amazing. I was kind of look, reading, preparing for this anger sermon, and it was amazing all the like, righteous indignation I felt and all the different ways I like, celebrated the rage of the kid that beat up on the bully. I just watched YouTube video after YouTube video. So there are times when actually when we like celebrate anger, we treat it as a virtue. I mean, this is certainly guys. When our egos kind of come into play, um, we, we kind of, you know, we wear our anger like it's a badge of strength, like it's awesome, like it makes us a man. Which, of course, what Proverbs tells us is if you don't control your anger, you're actually weak, not strong. So we, think, we just don't think of anger as a problem very often, but when you look at some of the places, and especially in Paul's letters, where he talks to the church and he says, here's some things you've got to put to death. Some works of the flesh. Colossians 3 says this, Put to death sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire, covetousness, verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander. It's listed with all of those others. In Galatians 5, he says, he contrasts these with the fruit of the Spirit. He says, These are the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, notice something about what he says. How many times does he mention witchcraft? One time. Idol worship. Worshiping something else as God when, in fact, it is not God. Mentions it once, right? Sexual sin. He references it maybe three, possibly four different ways. Anger. Enmity, strife, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. He addresses it six different times in the same list. Do you see the concern that God has for anger? And yet, all of us feel witchcraft, right? We get on our Harry Potter bandwagon, all that kind of stuff. Sexual morality, idol worship, much worse. Paul emphasizes anger. And it's, problem, it's a problem because none of us believe it's a problem. It's kind of like if you've seen The Usual Suspects, the great quote from that movie. The greatest trick the devil ever, the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. The most dangerous sin in our life is the one we think doesn't exist. Anger is a problem because we don't believe it exists and because it's all over us. It just really is. All of us have blown up at our parents, and anger takes on different forms. Maybe it's passive, maybe you're very outwardly aggressive, but blown up at our parents over a discipline issue, over some kind of disagreement about something. Okay, this past Sunday, preacher is driving home from church. Guy cuts him off. I preached, and I was driving home from preaching my sermon, like left my own sermon seven minutes ago, and just blew up on this guy on the road. And, he had, and then, of course, he's a military veteran, which makes you kind of feel torn, like, oh, this guy probably like, took bullets for freedom and all this kind of stuff, and now I'm pissed. It was just horrible. <laughs> the traffic, we're all blowing up in traffic. Okay, I'm a part of this. There have been a lot of RUF intramural games where maybe the Christians on the RUF team haven't handled themselves with generosity and charity, but rather blowing up at a referee's call, at the words of somebody else, at any kind of slight to your ego or your pride. Okay, we're talking about intramural sports, pickup sports. The, the only thing more insignificant we engage in besides intramural sports is video games. Video games... <laughs> Is the most insignificant thing. If you're struggling with video game, anger, please come talk to me. <laughs> That's the most unimportant thing you ever do. Everything you do, sleeping, brushing your teeth, choosing your clothes, whatever it is, 
There's nothing you can do more insignificant than video gaming. And if you're getting angry at that, man, the gospel is here for you. You need to meet Jesus. But right above video games is intramural sports and pickup sports. And to blow up in that setting, interacting in a, a game like that, that's as meaningless as nothing more than just kind of a leisure activity. Y'all, anger's all over us. We blow up in the most insignificant moments. Here's one of my favorite ones. We've all been a part of this, too. The boyfriend or girlfriend, they ask you something like, they don't read your expectations. It can look like this. It could look like other things. Do you want to hang out tonight, or can I hang out with my friends? Right? Oh, you can hang out with your friends, which means I want you to hang out with me, but don't make me tell you that I want you to hang out with me. But when you tell them you can hang out with your friends, guess what they're going to do? Hang out with their friends. And then you get angry at them because you lied to them. Anger's all over us. It's so complex. Did y'all follow me? That was... Okay. I know nobody in here has ever gotten upset with their roommates, so we don't have to address that. Uh, All of y'all keep your apartments... Perfectly, flawlessly clean. No one's ever been late for a bill. No one's ever made social plans without letting other people know. So we don't have to talk about that tonight. But um, it comes in all different forms. And um, I, I was reminded of a Seinfeld episode called The Comeback. And kind of maybe one of the more pathetic forms of anger is when after the scenario occurs and you're back home or you're leaving, you come up with the perfect comeback. But it's 15 minutes too late. And there's a Seinfeld episode where George is pigging out on shrimp at a meeting. And this guy in the meeting says, hey, George, the ocean called. They're running out of shrimp. George is stunned. He's got nothing. And he's furious. And then the whole episode is about George trying to recreate a scenario where that guy will basically share that same cut down again. And George has orchestrated this comeback that's going to be awesome. So he's trying to orchestrate all the circumstances to get back in that situation. And his comeback is, oh, yeah, well, the jerk store called and they're out of you. (laughs) But anger takes on a lot of different forms. And certainly those are lighter instances, but um, it's not simply, it's also, remember, it's not simply the blow-up, it's not the outburst, it's bitterness, it's resentment, it's, it's that sting, kind of long-term, low-level burning, the sharpness, the resentment that you have, um, a lingering antipathy, antipathy for somebody. Sometimes anger looks like coldness or distance or even indifference. Indifference is not forgiveness, to become indifferent with somebody. It's actually anger to stop caring for somebody. But you know also we've all gotten cold or distant from people. And so we don't characterize it as anger because it's not an outburst, but we know exactly what we're doing. Gossip and slander is a way we deal with anger. Anger can look like irritability or being easily annoyed. Just the minimal level to get irritated is just low. You find yourself constantly talking or thinking about things and people that you can't stand. Grudge holding, scorekeeping. Anger can look like hundreds of different things. And here's the other danger of it. It always feels justified. Anger has great reasons. And in some ways, probably the first key to dealing with anger is to develop a healthy sense of self-suspicion. To learn to be suspicious, not just of your emotions, which is hard, but actually also of your reasons, which might be harder. Because anger will give you reasons, and they will sound like good reasons. 
And you're going to be powerless against anger as long as you trust all of your reasons all the time. One thing the gospel does when it comes and it says that we're sinners is it also says there are a lot of effects of sin. And one of those effects is your reason, even your thinking is broken. And so one fruit of the gospel is that you actually become someone who becomes suspicious of your own reasons. Not just your feelings, but even your reasons. So what is anger? Let's get a working definition to continue to go through tonight. It's everywhere. It's, it feels justified. We don't believe it really exists. I'll give you the long definition and then the short one. The long one is thoughts, words, and deeds of antagonism toward others that manifest themselves when the world doesn't act as if it revolves around us. It's thoughts, it's words, and deeds of antagonism toward others that manifest themselves when the world doesn't act as if it revolves around us. Here's the short definition. It's the rage we have at not getting what we want. It's the rage we have at not getting what we want. Because I want the world a certain way for myself. I want people to think a certain way, to act a certain way. I expect certain outcomes for me, and I also expect certain outcomes for you. And anger are all the thoughts and words and deeds of antagonism that manifest themselves when the world doesn't work the way I want it to. Both for me, but actually also for you. So what are all the facets of anger? What does Proverbs have to teach us about the different aspects of it? The first thing we learn in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Verse 30, 33, pressing anger produces strife. Anger destroys relationships. As anger is, as we nourish it, as we live in it, it breaks relationships down. And this is why. Because if anger is the result of believing the world revolves around my wishes and hopes, and it's supposed to go the way I intended it, and if the nature of relationships is that you're entering into my world that's about me, then guess what? Nobody else, here's a big shocker, no one else thinks that you're near as important or central as you think you are. Nobody does. Nobody thinks you're as important or as central as you think you are. Because we're all too busy thinking we're central and important. And we're all angry about the fact that no one else thinks we're central and important. So all we are are these tiny universes. We're at the center of our own little universe and thinking everything rotates around us, colliding all the time, saying, why are y'all not all rotating around me? Y'all, why is RUF not 400 people big? Come on. Don't y'all, don't y'all know that's what I'm all about? Like, y'all obviously don't understand how this campus is supposed to revolve around me. That's ridiculous. And yet all of us operate that way. And you see, relationship can't happen in that context where everybody thinks that they're the most important person and everything revolves around them. And so anger produces strife that is brokenness in relationships. Angers our rage at the fact the world doesn't revolve around us. And it destroys relationships because no one you relate to believes that the world revolves around you. You're the only one. A, a, a perfect example is the friendship that kind of dissolves, or at least your kind of mutual feelings dissolve, or, because you get angry when good things happen to a friend and not you. Right? We've all been in that situation. When good things happen to a friend, maybe they get a boyfriend or a girlfriend you didn't get, right? Grades are working out. Money's working out. Jobs are working out. 
good things are happening for them and not you. Well, if you're the center of your life, that's cause for great anger. And all of a sudden, you can't really be friends with them anymore. You can relate to each other, but the friendship begins to break down because of the bitterness and the rage and the jealousy over things working out for them and not working out for you because that wasn't your plan. Anger breaks down relationships. It's powerful. Secondly, it's powerful. 1632, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules the spirit better than he who takes a city. The Bible sees it as no small task to control our anger. And God says it's easier to capture a fortified city than to get a hold of anger. This is what this means. You haven't really kind of rubbed up against your anger problem unless you found it to be overwhelming. You hadn't hit it unless you haven't found it to be overwhelming, that it's greatly taxing to actually deal with. It takes a ton of energy and focus. If it's easy to blow off anger, then God wouldn't compare it to taking a city. Okay? If it's easy to blow off, then God wouldn't compare it to taking a city. Anger is powerful. It takes great power to fight it. Anger is controlling. 27.4, anger is overwhelming. Proverbs 19.19, a man of great wrath will pay the penalty. If you deliver him, you will only have to do it again. Listen to that. The man of great wrath will pay the penalty, but if you, and if you deliver him, you're only going to have to do it again. Now what's Scripture teaching us? That anger ensnares us. We get wrapped up in it, and it's all over us, and we can't get out of it. And he's actually saying it doesn't help the angry person to bail them out of the consequences of their anger. It doesn't necessarily help the angry person to bail them out of the consequences of anger. And love... We're not talking about vengeance, but actual love, concern, not I'm glad they experienced their consequences, but rather I hope they can grow. I care for them. Love, is, this verse is given in the context of a father training a son, and love means that sometimes people need to experience the consequences of their anger because it's so addictive that if you protect an angry person from the consequences of their actions, you're actually not helping them because anger, it's hard to root out. It sticks it's addictive. We love it. It makes us feel alive, doesn't it? And just like every addiction, the more addicted we get, the less aware we are that we're addicted to it. Anger is controlling. Anger also leads to more sin. It destroys relationships. It's powerful. It's controlling. And it leads to more sin. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression, causes more sin. Anger leads to dissension among friends. It leads to jealousy and envy. It leads to a party spirit creating allegiances among your friends. We've all been in the classic breakup scenario where all of a sudden the groups of friends are kind of partitioned of who you're with. Don't ask me to be on your team. I'm against both of y'all, just so you know that. That's funny. Or was that too hard? I don't know. But anger does that. We've all been in that situation. And one of the things Jesus hates the most is when God's people are divided against one another. That's why he tells us all over the place, but especially in Hebrews 12, 14, strive to be at peace with everyone. And if you're wondering what striving for peace looks like, striving is not, well, I called them a couple of times. They didn't answer my texts or my Facebook messages. That's not striving. Jesus shows us what it looks like to strive to be at peace with everyone. He paid the price of his life so that we can be at peace with God. Striving is a big task. 
It's not a couple of unanswered phone calls or a couple of Facebook messages that they never responded to. So you made your effort. Check off my box. I get to still be angry at them because I tried, right? Jesus shows us what striving looks like to be at peace with people. Anger leads to self-righteousness. It leads to hardness of heart. We actually begin to lack the capacity to care about people's pain. We even kind of grow to enjoy their pain. What Kevin DeYoung calls it, he calls it a gateway sin. Anger leads to more sin and feeds other sin. And lastly, anger is foolishness. It's the opposite of wisdom. Whoever is slow to anger, 14.29, has great understanding, wisdom. He who has a hasty temper exalts folly. He's a fool. A fool gives vent to a spirit. A wise man holds it back. Anger is foolishness. Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher, calls anger temporary insanity. It's a lack of understanding. It's the opposite of wisdom. Now, why? The reason why is because anger is the result of our narcissism. God works His creation, which He made, of which we're all a part. We're not our own. We're His created thing. Just like your paper and your artwork is your created thing. And he works all of us and all of his creation to the praise of his glory. And all of his providential guiding and directing all of creation is for his glory. Anger is our rage over the fact that everything doesn't work according to my plan for me. It's utter foolishness for us to see ourselves as the centers of the world. Okay, that's insane. That, that's insane actually whether or not you even believe God exists. It's insane to see yourself as the center of the world. And anger is our rage at the fact that the world doesn't conduct itself the way we think it should. It's insane to believe the world should operate the way Britain would, planned and hoped that it would. That, I mean, that really is crazy. Do you get that? Like, that's crazy for us to think that. That, that means that the rest of y'all are at some, some kind of figment of my imagination or servant for me. That's ridiculous. I mean, here's an example of, of ridiculous rage in my own life. It's still hard to raise two six-year-old and two four-year-old girls. They're still very physically and emotionally exhausting. A little bit easier than it was when they were all in diapers. But every night, we finally put them in bed around somewhere between 7.30 and 8.30. And Elizabeth and I are exhausted, and we're ready to crash on the couch we're watching Lost right now. We're in the first season. It's kind of fun. We're enjoying that. But, like, this is our moment to crash. It is reasonable. Like, Elizabeth has, has, just, has burned more energy. She burns more energy every day than any of us in this room, me included, times two. It is reasonable, is it not, for her to expect the opportunity to rest. She's served these girls with all of her being. Okay? And then we hear the feet, and we hear the jumping on the bed. And then screams, then you cries at some point and all that kind of stuff. And we have to go upstairs and tend the girls. And it's another 45 minutes of just emotional stuff trying to get the girls to settle down. And we rage at it that the girls don't get it's our time to rest. We rage at it. Okay, that's ridiculous for us to rage at it. They're four years old. Every single night they're sleep, having a sleepover with their best friend and their sinners. What part of that equation leads to the fact that when we put them down to bed at 8, they're just going to put their heads down and never say another word? Nothing. It is ridiculous for us to rage at that. It really is. Doesn't mean they're not wrong. 
But it's ridiculous for us to rage in that scenario, and we rage every night. I have this place in my tooth where I grind my teeth when they start doing that, that I can feel wearing thin after six years. I was like trying to put them to bed. I'm not kidding you. I was feeling it on the way over here. I was thinking, I could show people they can't see. It's too far away. <laughs> you got the grade. Your professor gave you the grade that you earned, and you rage against it. Okay, do you see the insanity in that? You got the grade that you did the work and earned. The C, the D, some of y'all it's like an A minus, right? <laughs> Your parents told you not to do something and they punished you when you did it and you rage. Okay, do you see how insane that is? Rage is insanity, it really is. And we've been given a couple of bad approaches to it real briefly. The first one, to bear your, bear your anger. Being slow to anger is not the same thing as lying about your anger. And what's one of the great mantras of, of all romantic relationships, boyfriend, girlfriend, engaged couple, husband, wife, whatever? I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated, right? I'm not angry, I'm just angry and a liar. That's what that is. <laughs> Burying anger is not the solution. And y'all were angry. All sin is actually anger towards God. We hate the way he made the world, and we want to do it the way we want. All sin is anger towards God. We're all angry with our parents, even the wonderful Christian families. You're, you hate your parents. You really do. We're all angry with our friends. We're all angry with our boyfriend or girlfriend. We just really are. We're angry people. And being able to finally admit your anger, instead of dressing up and renaming it and pretending it's not there, it's actually freeing. I'm not saying vent it. I'm not saying let it all out. But owning up to it and admitting it, instead of changing the name for it, is actually freeing. Not venting it, but confessing it. And the people who on the... We've all done this. I'm not angry. When we put on that superficial face, we're not fooling anybody. Because anger is one of the worst things we are at hiding. We like to think we're good at hiding that one. But pretending on the outside to be something that we're indeed not on the inside... It's bad for your humanity. It destroys you. I mean, like, to create that disconnection, you're angry. You are. And we all know it. It's not working. The I'm just frustrated line. None of us buy it because we've all given that line before. Bearing it doesn't help. Inventing it doesn't help. 29.11, a fool gives vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. I'll never forget my roommate in college. Um, this is before he was a Christian. Uh, he used to watch, he and I watched Alabama football together. I'm a big Bama fan. And literally before the game, he had this one pillow that he would set up on his right-hand side because he's right hand. And then he had a golf umbrella that he would get in his right hand. And like, it was, it was really crazy. It was another one of illustrations of how rage is insane. He would just beat the crap out of this pillow. That was his, like, game day ritual, everything that went wrong during the game. He vented his fury, and it didn't make him less angry. It actually fueled it and left him more firmly entrenched in his anger. Venting doesn't free you from anger. It makes you feel alive. Okay, but that's not healing. Venting doesn't free you from anger. It actually strengthens the grip of anger in our hearts. 12.16, the vexation of a fool is known at once. 
but the prudent ignores an insult. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Uh, an insult. This is, addresses the anger over an insult, a shot at our pride and our ego. A fool has to address it at once. has got to bow up immediately because his pride is wounded and so his vexation is immediately known. But the wise person ignores an insult. You know, when our immediate anger as a reaction to an insult or a shot at our pride is actually a testimony to our insecurity and our weakness. That's what that is. The need to kind of bow up at any shot at our bride, at our, at our ride. Pride. That was a good shot at my pride right there. I'm a preacher. I can't talk. Um, Right? Again, it's easy to think of the guy. Illustrations. Sports. Heat of combat. Stranger makes an ignorant comment about you in a pickup game. And our pride is so fragile and we're so insecure that we're like, I have to defend my honor right now. Who cares? Really? How important is that? Someone that doesn't know you makes a comment. Why do we have to defend that? Because we're really insecure. It's not a sign of our strength that we bow up to that. It's a sign of our insecurity and weakness that we bow up to that. That we immediately vent our anger. So what are we going to do? The healing of anger. A couple of points of application. The first thing we've got to do is we've got to, besides admitting our anger, is we've got to diagnose it. We've got to ask the why question. We've got to follow it down. We've got to do the work of saying, why am I reacting this way? Where are these feelings coming from? Why do these words shoot out? Why do these actions, why do these fantasies come to mind? And work it down. What is it you're afraid of? What is it you're afraid of these situations come? And what we'll find most often is that our sense of what is just, because when we're angry, it's coming, the reason we get angry is because it's coming up against our sense of just, but our sense of justice is based on us as an individual, not on God or his word. So we get angry, and if you'll follow your anger down, you usually find that your sense of what is just and what is merciful is actually skewed, right? Again, why does someone like him or her get to date such a great person when I'm single? Right? Follow that down. Diagnose it. Ask why. You'll find several falsehoods that you believe. You don't believe that you're a sinner. You also believe that they're worse than you are. You'll find that you don't believe in mercy for them, which is actually the very thing you need for yourself. So you follow anger down, you actually find out most often it's selfishness and hurt pride that are the sources of our anger. Follow your anger down. Ask the questions of why, where it's coming from, where are the fears you have. What is it about how this world is supposed to go that you're afraid is not going to happen for you? You'll find out you don't trust God. You believe you deserve a lot of things. All kinds of, all kinds of foolish thinking, really, things like that. And then you've got to put your anger in proportion. You've got to put it in proportion, verse 19, 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger. It's his glory to overlook an offense. Okay. Why do we rage at the friend who flirted with the girl that we like? Get our feelings hurt because someone makes a joke that's slightly over the line at our expense. And yet people, thousands of people at USC are dying in loneliness right now. We don't give a rip about that. Right? We don't give a rip about the loneliness of just the guy or the girl in our suite or even in our room. 
but we're enraged when another guy gets another girl that we happen to like laughing. Why are we so petty? Why are we so petty and angry about little things and we're numb to things like real injustice and horrible poverty that is just blocks from us right now and real pain? We've got to put our anger in proportion to the offense. We've got to see small things as small things and let them go. We've got to diagnose our anger means following it down and also putting it in proportion. Secondly, we've got to get our perspective corrected about the nature of reality. This is a big one. Get our perspective corrected. The central, anger, the central issue of anger is to whom this world is to be held accountable, right? And we believe the world is accountable to us. I'm the center, center. I'm the judge, and I'm the one who determines how things should and shouldn't be, how people should and shouldn't think, how they should and shouldn't act, and what should and shouldn't happen to me. The root of anger is narcissism. It's self-obsession. Seeing ourselves individually as the king and the judge of the world. And that's precisely what James is dealing with in James, 1, uh, James 4, 1 through 4, when he's talking about all the anger. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask, but you don't receive because you ask wrongly, because you ask to spend it all on you. He's saying that you fight, and even when you do ask, you don't get it, because it's all about you to you. What if anybody in Scripture has cause for complaint and anger and rage is Job. The guy loved God, followed God, lost everything. Family, wealth, health. He's on the brink of death for no reason. For no reason. So all throughout the book of Job, he's struggling with how he should relate to God with regard to this. And finally, when he kind of gives in to his frustration with God, here's what God says. This is how God corrects his perspective corrects the notion that Job's at the center of the world and Job should get what Job wants. Here's one of those beautiful moments where God uses sarcasm, but it's also strong and it's intimidating. He says this to Job in Job 38. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Then he says this, Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you will make it known to me. The guy loved God, lost everything for no reason. This is what God has to say. Dress for action like a man, and I'll question you. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when all the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shout for joy? Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the wound? When I made the clouds its garment, the thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further. And here shall your proud ways be stayed. Have you commanded the morning sun since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it may take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked shall be taken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal. He goes on for chapters. He goes, explain to me again, were you in charge of creating all of the world? Do you run dawn? Because that's kind of my business. I do that every day. Oh, yeah, and dusk, too. The seas, you know why they are where they are? Because I put them there, and I tell them, you can go up to this point, and then you have to go back. I'll maybe move you a little bit further in Japan than bring you back. 
What he's doing here with Job is he's correcting Job's perspective. God's the main, the one who made the world, sustains the world, holds it together. He's the judge, and we are not his judge. It was made for his glory, and he is governing and preserving the world to that end. And he will sovereignly administer justice, and he will work all things to the praise of his glory. And it's only with that corrected perspective that we can actually then begin to ask the question of, what about righteous anger? Once our perspective gets corrected and realize, okay, there actually is a person about which all of creation revolves. It was made by him, it's sustained by him, it's held together by him, and works to his glory. It's him, it's not us. So he's the judge. And the good thing is he's holy and he's righteous and he's pure. So his justice is perfect and we can rest in that. And guess what? It's not our responsibility to judge anymore. We don't have to rage anymore because it's not about us. We can trust him. He's sovereign. And see, actually, with that corrected perspective, we can then ask the question, what about righteous anger? Because that's a legitimate question we should ask. And there are two places in Scripture people cite Psalm 4, be angry and do not sin. Psalm, uh, excuse me, Ephesians 4.26, in your anger, don't sin. Jesus cleansing the temple steps, throwing all the tables off the temple steps. So we see these couple episodes of anger. And twice when God's people are addressed, be angry and do not sin. Okay, here's the first thing we've got to do before we even talk about it. The Bible twice provides counsel for righteous anger. Twice. Hundreds of times it warns us against sinful anger. Here's the implication. Be careful to presume that your anger is righteous. Twice, small verses out of these couple thousand pages, a little over a thousand pages. He, taught, he gives us counsel for righteous anger. Hundreds of times he warns us against sinful anger. So if you've got a punch card, you should be punching it like once every five years for righteous anger. Once you've got your once every five years, it's probably not righteous anger after that. Righteous anger, here's the second most important thing. Righteous anger comes from love. Righteous anger is just one aspect of love. Not injured pride and not selfishness, but of love. Righteous anger is born out of selflessness. It's out of desire for other people's well-being. That's what righteous anger is. It's a love that's so deeply committed to the well-being of another that it hates anything that brings evil and injustice and pain into the life of the other, the object loved. Righteous anger is just one side of true love. And that's why God's anger is pure and full of love. He hates our anger, and his hatred of it is righteous because it grieves him that we would be so petty and selfish and foolish and think that we've got to fight and to scrap in this world to get our own and blow up in rage when we don't. He hates that because he offers grace, and he offers love and kindness and forgiveness and new life and healing, and he actually offers justice and all the blessings of the new covenant, and we're actually too angry to rest in him, let him be judge. And it's actually a very good thing that vengeance is his and not ours. If you think about it for very long, that provides a lot of rest once you begin to believe that. Because if there was no judge who had a perfect sense of justice and also had the power to adjudicate and eradicate evil, then what that would mean is if there was no God and yet justice was a real concept... And so there was no longer this being who could actually execute it, then it would, be responsible to, it would be responsible of all of us to bring vengeance. Right? That would bring chaos into this world. 
If God was not the God who said, vengeance is mine and it's not yours, then all of us would be responsible for figuring out some way to bring vengeance into this world. That would be chaos. Because with our bent understanding of justice, the fact that it's all wrapped up in all kinds of selfishness and pride, our lack of self-control and our impatience and our entitlement, if we thought it was each individual's right and prerogative to exact vengeance, okay, that's the worst idea ever, whether or not you believe in God. So is vengeance God's or is it humanity's? Do you see the insanity of believing it's humanity's responsibility to exact vengeance? It's good news that God is judge. And he will exact vengeance, even in the real evils that you have really experienced. You need to trust and rest in Jesus because vengeance is his. You don't have to fantasize about it anymore. You can rest in the fact that your father will care for you and he will bring vengeance. There really is rest to be had in that. Our anger is neither pure enough nor powerful enough, actually, for vengeance. And it's actually not our right. So you can actually, you can actually there's a sense in which you, if you grapple with this, you'll find out you can put your anger to rest because your Father's going to take care of justice for you. And His anger is good because He's holy and He's right and He's true. And it's to Him that we're accountable. Lastly, for dealing with our anger in our life, we've got to bring the gospel, obviously, into contact with it. The solution to our anger problem is really gospel. We need Jesus to forgive us of our rage and our irritability and our indifference. But most of all, we actually have to forgive, have him forgive us for the fact that we presume to be judge and king. That we presume to be the adjudicator of what's all right and wrong. Because every time we make a judgment and grow in anger, what we're saying is, God, your sovereign plan was idiotic and wrong. That's what we're saying with our rage. So we've got to bring all that to him. And here's the great, wonderful mystery about his anger. One of the Old Testament's favorite way to talk about God. It's in, the, it's in the old history books. It's in the Psalms. It's in the prophets. This title. He is slow to anger. And he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's all throughout the Old Testament. It's one of his titles used most often. That's the gospel. When I talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, which is really the key to wisdom and the key to life, this is what it looks like in the area of anger. You've got to own up to the fact you're angry. You've got to see that your anger is actually idolatry. You've taken God off the throne and out of the judgment seat and set yourself up there. And then you've got to come to Jesus with your anger and idolatry. And this is what you need to know when you come to him. He's slow to anger. And he abounds in steadfast love and graciousness. And he is faithful in his steadfast love and graciousness. And it's when we experience the fact that Jesus was slow to anger with us. And that God, who was slow to anger, did eventually pour out his anger and his wrath. And he poured out the anger and wrath that was due us on his son at the cross. When we begin to rest in that, then the anger in our life starts to weaken. Let's pray.